0: Section forty three of England since Waterloo by John Arthur Ransom Marriott. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter twenty two Administrative Reform and Foreign Affairs The Climax of the Century on the Continent, eighteen sixty eight to eighteen seventy four. Part one The disestablishment and disendowment of the Irish Church. The reform of Irish land tenure, the establishment of a national system of elementary education, these things, large and difficult as they were, did not exhaust the tireless energies of Mr. Gladstone's first administration. The army and the civil service, the judicial bench, and the licensed victuallers, trade unionists, and miners were some of the people who came within the orbit of their reforming activities. Down to the middle of the 19th century, the principle prevailed that the public services existed in large measure in order to provide appropriate occupation for the cadets of the ruling families. Qualifying examinations for candidates were instituted in 1855, and a year earlier the places in the civil service of India were thrown open to competition. The same principle was applied, with few exceptions, to the Home Civil Service by an order in council in 1870. A very few of the highest posts may still be filled by nomination. In the Foreign Office, there is a combination of nomination and competitive examinations. The Education Department is recruited mainly from the universities by nomination, BUT THE GREAT MASS OF CIVIL SERVICE APPOINTMENTS ARE GIVEN EXCLUSIVELY ON THE RESULTS OF AN EXAMINATION WHICH IS BOTH OPEN AND COMPETITIVE. CONSEQUENTLY, SINCE 1870, THE HIGHER RANKS OF THE CIVIL SERVICES HAVE COMMANDED SOME OF THE BEST BRAINS OF THE NATION. MUCH MORE THORNY WAS THE QUESTION OF ARMY REFORM, BUT MR Gladstone HAD PUT AT THE WAR OFFICE ONE OF HIS ABLEST LIEUTENANTS. Mr. Edward Cardwell was, like his chief, the son of a Liverpool merchant. Educated at Winchester and Balliol, he found a seat in the House of Commons before he was thirty and served his official apprenticeship under Peel. As president of the Board of Trade from 1852 to 1855, he was responsible for the Merchant Shipping Act of 1854. In subsequent ministries he served as chief secretary for ireland and secretary of state for the colonies he brought therefore to the war office in eighteen sixty eight wide administrative experience and a high reputation for firmness and tact like his colleague lowe he was a stern economist of the manchester school and disliked the desertion of laissez-faire principles implicit in the irish land act of eighteen seventy but he had other opportunities for enforcing them. It was the dominant maxim of the Manchester School that the colonies should be gradually prepared for independence. To this end, the British garrisons had been already withdrawn from Australia and New Zealand. Mr. Cardwell carried the same principle much further. When he took office, the number of British soldiers in the colonies was 49,000 by 1870 he had reduced them to about 18,000. The military expenditure on the colonies he reduced in the same period from 3,388,023 pounds to 1,905,538 pounds. Of the latter sum, a large proportion was expended on imperial garrisons in stations such as Malta and Gibraltar, and cardwell reckoned the strictly colonial expenditure in eighteen seventy at less than seven hundred thousand pounds it was cardwell's hope and belief that diminished expenditure might go hand in hand with increased efficiency his first task therefore was to complete the reorganization of the war office itself down to eighteen fifty five the confusion which characterized army administration was appalling but the Crimean War necessitated a measure of reform, the main outlines of which have been already described. Cardwell completed the process. He assigned the business of his office to three departments under the Commander in Chief, the Surveyor General of the Ordnance, and the Financial Secretary, respectively, and all were brought under the control of the Secretary of State. The subordination of the Commander in Chief to the Parliamentary Minister was emphasized by the removal of the headquarters staff from the horse guards to the war office this change involved an encroachment upon one of the most cherished prerogatives of the crown the sovereign had hitherto regarded the army as peculiarly her own domain and the commander-in-chief as in a special sense her servant his subordination to the secretary of state terminated his immediate dependence on the crown and it was with ill-concealed reluctance that the queen signed the order in council, June 28, 1870, which gave effect to the policy of her responsible advisers. It may be added that in 1904 the position was further simplified by the abolition of the office of commander-in-chief. Having put in order the administrative machinery, Cardwell next turned to the reorganization of the army itself the success of Prussian arms in the wars against Austria and France naturally attracted the attention of military reformers to the system by which so brilliant a result had been achieved. It also raised anxious questionings as to the efficiency of our own system. The idea of compulsory service, the basis of the Prussian system, was considered, but only to be deliberately rejected. That point settled, Cardwell bent all his energies to making our small volunteer army as efficient as possible. In moving the army estimates for 1871, Mr. Cardwell put forward an elaborate statement of his scheme. The estimates, which had shown considerable reduction in the two previous years, amounted to 15,851,700 pounds, an increase of nearly 3 million pounds over the vote, for 1870. For this sum, the country was to have 497,000 men under arms, 135,000 regulars, of whom 108,000 would be in England, 9,000 First Army Reserve, 30,000 Second Army Reserve and pensioners, 139,000 militia, 14,000 Yeomanry, and 170,000 Volunteers. The whole of this force was to be unified and to be controlled by the War Office and the Commander in Chief. This process involved two changes of first rate importance the transfer of the control of the auxiliary forces from the Lord Lieutenants to the Crown, and the abolition of the system by which commissions in the regular army were obtained by purchase. Vested interests were to be safeguarded officers were to receive not only the regulation price they had paid for commissions but the additional price sanctioned by long usage this would involve a sum of seven million pounds to eight million pounds but the house of commons agreed to pay the price the lords however accepted an amendment declining to give a second reading to the army regulation bill until they had before them the complete plan of army reorganization Avoiding a direct affirmation in favor of an intolerable abuse, the lords had nevertheless scotched the government scheme. But they had not killed it. They had not reckoned on the constitutional or unconstitutional resourcefulness of the Prime Minister. Mr. Gladstone met the action of the lords by a startling coup d'etat. On July 20th, the simultaneous statements were made by the leaders of the two houses that the government had advised the Queen to take the decisive step of cancelling the royal warrant by which purchase is legal, that Her Majesty had agreed to sign a warrant to that effect, and that on November 1, 1871, purchase would cease to exist. Meanwhile, the Parliament would be invited to proceed with the compensation scheme contained in the Army Bill. That Bill duly became law but the lords in assenting to the second reading added a resolution that the conduct of the government was calculated to depreciate and neutralize the independent action of the legislature and was strongly to be condemned that the ministers were technically within their legal rights is undeniable equally undeniable is it that their use of executive authority was to the last degree daring if not dangerous that their action should have aroused intense excitement was only according to expectation mr disraeli denounced it as part of an avowed and shameful conspiracy against the undoubted privileges of the other house of parliament others deprecated such a distorted abuse of the royal prerogative technically however the action involved neither the abuse nor the use of the prerogative as both lord granville and mr gladstone were careful to insist this particular power of the crown was statutory action being taken under the provisions of forty nine george the third c one twenty six nevertheless as mr freeman the constitutional historian said the thing had an ill look mr gladstone had two courses before him he might abolish purchase by a royal warrant that is, by using the discretion which Parliament had given to the Crown, or he might bring a bill into Parliament, what gave the thing an ill look was that, having chosen the second way, and not being able to carry his point that way, he then fell back on the first way. I believe, he added with shrewd insight, that this is one of those cases in which a strictly conscientious man like Mr. Gladstone does things from which a less conscientious man would shrink. Not less important than the change in the tenure of the officers was that in the enlistment of the men. In 1829, the principle of enlistment for life had been for the first time adopted. Recruits were, on these terms, difficult to get. A large portion of them were obtained, through the lying stories of recruiting sergeants, poured into the ears of country yokels befuddled with drink. In fact, they were to a large extent nothing more nor less than kidnapped. In 1847, the term of enlistment was reduced to twelve years in the first instance, but men were encouraged to re-enlist for a further period of nine years or even longer. The result was, naturally, a great deficiency of reserves this deficiency mr cardwell attempted to supply by continuing enlistment for twelve years six of which were to be spent with the colours and six in a special reserve soldiers with the colours were to be taught a trade and reservists were to receive fourpence a day the scheme has proved a great success a better class of men have been attracted to the ranks and the reservists whenever called upon to mobilize have responded with alacrity and enthusiasm. Another part of Cardwell's scheme was to evoke local patriotism by associating each regiment with a territorial district. The country was divided into districts, from each of which were to be raised a regiment of the line consisting of two linked battalions, one serving at home, the other abroad, while the militia and the volunteers were to be brought into close relation with the regular battalions this portion of cardwell's scheme has been only partially successful but it cannot be denied that for the first time a great army administrator had attempted to work out a far-sighted and comprehensive scheme and with unusual persistence and skill to adapt limited means to illimitable ends the lot of an army reformer is not a happy one in military circles there was hardly a good word for the war minister yet mr cardwell achieved the most brilliant success of the session of eighteen seventy one though he achieved it at the cost of alienating a powerful section of society the home secretary mr bruce alienated another section even more powerful and without anything to show for it for the licensed victuallers while not less articulate in their opposition than the colonels were far more successful the cause of their agitation was the abortive licensing bill of 1871. The bill proposed that existing licensees should, subject to good conduct and the payment of a small annual sum, remain undisturbed for ten years. At the termination of that period, the magistrates were to determine the number of public houses required for a district, put the privilege of conducting them up to auction, and apply the proceeds to the maintenance of a special public-house police force and other purposes for the benefit of the district the bill which was not very wisely conceived seriously alarmed the trade and did not evoke enthusiasm among ardent temperance reformers it had little hold on life and perished prematurely a much more modest measure was placed upon the statute book in eighteen seventy two Public houses were to be closed at twelve o'clock in London and at eleven o'clock in the country, unless the justices in the latter case fixed another time between ten o'clock and midnight, during certain hours on Sundays. The Act also contained provisions to secure the purity of the liquor sold. But though modest, it was not popular, and taken in conjunction with its abortive predecessor, aroused against the government the suspicious hostility of a powerful class the hostility of another class was aroused by mr goshen's bill for the reform of local government and the readjustment of local rates the main feature of the bill was the immediate transference of half the local rates from the occupier to the owner but as it failed even to reach a second reading the details need not detain us more serious for the prestige of the ministry than the abandonment of the legislative projects of mr bruce and mr goshen was the defeat sustained by the chancellor of the exchequer in regard to his proposed match-tax lowe was a purist not to say a pedant in finance but down to eighteen seventy one he had been for so clever a man unexpectedly successful at the exchequer in 1869, he had been able, by an ingenious alteration in the date of payment, to take a penny off the income tax, and had largely reduced the taxes on locomotion. He had also, with characteristic pedantry, abolished the one-shilling registration duty on imported corn. The tax brought in nearly a million a year and hurt nobody. In 1870, thanks to diminished expenditure on armaments, he had taken a further penny off the income tax, thus reducing it to fourpence. He had reduced the sugar duty by fifty percent and had abolished the newspaper stamp and the duty on railway passengers. But in 1871 fortune deserted him. Cardwell wanted an extra three millions for the army, and this Lowe proposed to raise in three ways. By a complicated readjustment of the income tax, which would have increased the rate by slightly more than one and a quarter pence in the pound, by an increase in the probate and succession duties, and by a small tax on matches, ex luce lucellum. All these proposals were unpopular, and the last raised an agitation out of all proportion to the intrinsic importance of the proposal. The cabinet gave way, all mr lowe's over ingenious devices were abandoned and an extra twopence on the income tax provided in humdrum fashion for the estimated deficit the twopence came off again in eighteen seventy two and a third penny in eighteen seventy three but mr lowe never recovered his prestige in eighteen seventy three an administrative scandal brought his own career at the exchequer to an abrupt and inglorious close and still further damaged the credit of the cabinet in which he continued to sit as Home Secretary. Long before 1873, however, the tide had begun to turn against the liberal government. Their appetite for legislation had been prodigious, and the digestion of the country proved to be less robust than their own. Apart from the larger statutes already described, there stands to the credit of their industry a long list of useful measures the trades union act of eighteen seventy one the mines act of eighteen seventy two the extradition act the naturalization act and the foreign enlistment act all part of the copious crop of eighteen seventy and the bank holiday act of eighteen seventy one the credit for which belongs however not to the ministry, but to one who attained eminence as a banker, a man of science, a social philosopher and a legislator, Sir John Lubbock afterwards, Lord Avebury. To the above list must be added two other acts of considerable importance, the Ballot Act of 1872 and the Judicature Act of 1873. Vote by ballot, had formed a part of the program of the society for constitutional information in 1780 the demand reappeared in a declaration of rights drafted in 1831 and again in the people's charter of 1837 but there was a strong prejudice not confined to conservative politicians against the principle of secret voting and not until after the election of 1868 did it become a question of practical politics a committee was appointed in 1869 to inquire into the whole subject of the conduct of parliamentary elections, and in 1870 Lord Hartington introduced a bill to abolish public nomination and to establish secret voting. Withdrawn in 1870, an amended bill was passed through the Commons in 1871. In the meantime, an argument from experience had been furnished by the first election for the London School Board which was elected by ballot. But the Lords, exacerbated by the royal warrant on army purchase, contemptuously rejected the bill. Their attitude stiffened the back of Mr. Gladstone, hitherto lukewarm about the ballot, and in September 1871 he declared that the People's Bill has been passed by the People's House, and when it was next presented at the door of the House of Lords it would be with an authoritative knock. In 1872, the Lords gave way, the ballot bill became law, but without the just and valuable provision contained in the original bill of 1871, by which the expenses of parliamentary elections would have been thrown upon the rates. The most important legislative achievement of the session of 1873 was an act for the reorganization and simplification of the work of the judicature this was due to the initiative of sir roundel palmer who on the resignation of lord hatherley had become lord chancellor and had been elevated to the peerage as lord selborne down to eighteen seventy three the judicial system was chaotic there existed no less than eight superior courts of first instance the king's or queen's bench the common pleas the Court of Exchequer, the Chancery Court, the High Court of Admiralty, the Court of Bankruptcy, the Court of Probate, and the Court for Divorce and Matrimonial Cases. Most of these courts had separate staffs of judges. Lord Selborne's Act of 1873 was the first step in the evolution of order out of the chaos, which, however interesting to the antiquarian, was distracting to litigants and lamentably wasteful both of time and money lord selborne's act was amended in eighteen seventy five eighteen seventy six and eighteen ninety four and was supplemented by an important order in council of december sixteenth eighteen eighty it may conduce to economy of space and lucidity to omit the chronological details and summarize the broad results in place of the numerous courts mentioned above, with their varieties of procedure and conflict of jurisdictions, we have now got one Supreme Court of Judicature, divided into one, the High Court of Justice, and two, the Court of Appeal. The former has three divisions one, the King's Bench Division, which now exercises the jurisdiction formerly exercised by the courts of King's Bench, Common Pleas, and Exchequer and the Court of Bankruptcy. The Lord Chief Justice acts as President, assisted by a staff of fifteen judges. Number two, the Chancery Division under the Lord Chancellor and six other judges. And number three, the Probate, Divorce, and Admiralty Divisions under the President and one other judge. The judges of the High Court act also as judges of assize on circuit, from the High Court, including courts of assize, an appeal lies to the Court of Appeal. This Court consists of three ex officio judges, the Lord Chancellor, the Lord Chief Justice, and the President of the Probate, Divorce, and Admiralty Division, and six permanent judges, namely the Master of the Rolls and five Lord Justices of Appeal. Finally, from this Court of Appeal and from the Scotch and Irish Courts, an appeal lies to the House of Lords in the course of the judicial reforms now under notice the lords went near to losing their historic rights of appellate jurisdiction by lord selborne's act of eighteen seventy three these rights were extinguished and transferred to the new court of appeal before the act came into operation however the clause relating to the house of lords was rescinded and by the judicature act of eighteen seventy six the appellate jurisdiction of the House of Lords was, for the first time, placed upon a statutory basis. Provision was made for the creation immediately of two, ultimately of four, salaried law lords, to be known as Lords of Appeal and Ordinary. Thenceforward, no appeal was to be heard unless at least three Lords of Appeal were present, such lords including not only the salaried law lords, but the Chancellor, ex-Chancellors, and any other peers who hold or have held high judicial office. The right of lay peers to take part in the judicial work of their house remains unaffected by the Act of 1876, but it is never exercised. The Act of 1876 also effected considerable changes in the judicial committee of the Privy Council. The Lords of Appeal and Ordinary, designated primarily for work in the House of Lords, were to act also on the judicial committee at the same time it was provided that the archbishops and such bishops as are members of the privy council should no longer be members of the judicial committee though they might continue to be summoned as assessors for the hearing of ecclesiastical appeals to the same committee the king may also appoint persons who have served as indian or colonial judges in effect however the composition of the judicial committee is almost identical with that of the house of lords sitting in a judicial capacity lord selborne's judicature act especially as amended later was an exceedingly valuable instalment of administrative reform it was not a party measure it was hardly a contentious one nevertheless it contributed to an impression which was beginning to prevail that no institution, however venerable, was secure from the hands of the reformer. Ever since 1871, the tide of government popularity had been unequivocally on the ebb. They had attempted not only to do too much, but to do it too quickly. In a telling phrase, Disraeli charged them with having legalized confiscation, consecrated sacrilege, and condoned high treason. This was the criticism of a partisan, but many besides partisans were becoming uneasy. The repose of almost all the comfortable classes had during the last five years been rudely disturbed. Landlords, churchmen, lawyers, brewers, all felt that the innovator was abroad in the land, and many who approved strongly of the domestic reforms of the liberal ministers were dissatisfied by their conduct of foreign affairs. To the latter question, we must now turn. The year 1870-1871 is frequently accounted the zenith of the liberal movement of the 19th century in England. It certainly marked the climax of the century upon the continent of Europe. It witnessed the transference of the Italian capital from Florence to Rome and the consummation of Italian unity, the consolidation of Germany, under a great federal empire, the establishment of the Third Republic in France, the final assertion of Russian claims in the Black Sea, and the promulgation of the doctrine of papal infallibility by the Vatican Council. Such events, even had they stood alone, could not have failed to affect the position of Great Britain in the European economy. The sequel will show that they did not with the movement which culminated in the union of North and South Italy under Victor Emmanuel, we have already dealt. On February 18, 1861, a parliament which was for the first time representative of nearly all parts of Italy assembled at Turin, but the work was still woefully incomplete. In the web of Italian unity, there were still two gaping rents, the austrians were still in venetia french troops were still protecting the remnant of the temporal power in rome the mending of both rents modern italy owes to bismarck early in eighteen sixty five the prussian ambassador at florence approached la marmora the italian minister with reference to a possible combination of italy and prussia against the common enemy austria la marmora wisely refused to put himself unreservedly into the hands of prussia and after the conclusion of the convention of gastein august fourteenth eighteen sixty five la marmora sent an envoy to vienna to sound the emperor francis joseph as to the possibility of an amicable cession of Venezia to italy la marmora offered to pay a large sum of money and to assume part of the national debt of austria the overture was haughtily declined by the emperor. His decision at this moment proved to be of crucial importance. Had he accepted La Marmora's terms, the whole course of European history might have been changed. The Seven Weeks War and the Franco-German War might have been almost indefinitely postponed. Austria might still be a part of Germany, Alsace and Lorraine might still be in the hands of France. The last obstacle in Bismarck's path had in reality been removed. In September of 1865, the Prussian minister met the French emperor at Biarritz. The blunt German, regarded by his host as a mere amateur in diplomacy, simply played with the master of intrigue. Bismarck went to Biarritz with two objectives— to induce Napoleon to help him to an alliance with Italy and to secure Napoleon's benevolent neutrality in the coming struggle with Austria. He came away from Biarritz a happy man. Both objects had been attained, and he had given in exchange nothing but verbal promises. On April 8, 1866, Prussia concluded an alliance offensive and defensive with Italy if within three months prussia should take up arms for the reform of the germanic bund italy undertook to declare war upon austria the price of the bargain was the cession of venetia too late the austrian emperor perceived the blunder he had committed at the eleventh hour he made a frantic effort to come to terms with victor emmanuel on the basis of the cession of venetia but italy had given austria her chance she had now made her bargain with prussia and to this bargain she faithfully adhered the consequence was that in the seven weeks war austria had not one enemy to confront but two the triumph of prussian arms was so rapid and complete that bismarck might have done without italy but in matters of moment he left nothing to chance italy reaped no glory from the war but she got her price venetia from the peace. There remained only Rome. Cavour had declared that, without Rome for a capital, Italy can never be firmly united. But Cavour had appreciated the diplomatic difficulties. Garibaldi and Mazzini never did. To them, the remnant of the temporal power seemed like a spear point embedded in a living body. Flouting all the worldly wisdom of the diplomatists, they had been eager, directly after the conquest of the two sicilies in eighteen sixty one to make an assault upon rome the story of garibaldi's generous folly on the one side and on the other that of the blunders of the italian government deprived of the statesmanship of cavour (footnote died eighteen sixty one and footnote need not be retold enough to say that with the opening of the franco-prussian war in eighteen seventy the long-drawn agony was ended. If Austria was obstinate in 1865, Napoleon was demented in 1870. On the eve of the Franco-German War, he refused to abandon the cause of the Pope. Better the Prussians at Paris than the Piedmontese in Rome, the Empress is reported to have said. But the dilemma was fallacious. On August 19th, the last French soldiers left Civitavecchia. A month later, September twentieth, the Italians, beating down the weak resistance of the Pope's troops, entered Rome, and the Italian tricolour floated from the capital. The Pope still refused to come to terms with Victor Emmanuel. A plebiscite declared in favour of annexation on June second, eighteen seventy-one. The King made his triumphal entry into his new capital. And on november twenty seventh a Parliament representative for the first time of every part of Italy was opened in Rome. At last, Italy was won End of section forty three